49. <clears throat> I am a little bit sick, so you guys might have to bear with me a little bit. It says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity at my heel surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave. Far from their dwelling, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. So, I didn't read the, <clears throat> the heading to this. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So, first off, this is the last psalm that's titled by the sons of Korah until we get to Psalm 84. Um, so we will not see that next time. Next time it's going to be Psalm of Asaph. We'll get into that and find out who he is when we get there. Um, but it says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. The word for world here is chaled in Hebrew. And um, it means all the world. And it does, doesn't just mean all the world. It means every age. So there is a kind of rule in what's called hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation or interpre interpreting especially ancient documents. And that is, this was not written to you, but for you, speaking of the Bible. It's not written to you, but it's written for you. It's for us, right? Um, <clears throat> It's, it's written for our learning. It says in Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So they're written for our learning. But was, were the Psalms written to us? No, they were written to a specific people at a specific place and in a specific time. Right? When we read the letters of Paul, we don't think, well, he's writing to the church in America even though it's for the church in America, right? God has made it for us. But this psalm, I believe, is a little bit different because it, look, at the, look at what it says. Hear this, all peoples give ear, all inhabitants of the world from every age, from every generation, to all places. That's who this psalm is written to. 
both low and high, rich and poor together. So when we read this psalm, it is not just written to a specific person or people at a specific date or in a specific place. It is written to all throughout all time, throughout all the ages, throughout every generation. And that's who this is written to. So let's be careful to listen to it. Verse 3, he says, My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark sayings on the harp. So he's going to give us a mystery, or even answer a mystery. It's a, it's a riddle that he's going to answer. He's going to disclose. He's going to open it up. A dark saying, a riddle. <clears throat> he's going to disclose what happens to the rich and to the poor alike after death. Okay, that's what this psalm is about. Just think of the thought throughout the history of the world. If you're rich, if things are going well for you, then God must really love you. He must really want to bless you because you're special in his eyes. But is that true? The psalmist is going to declare that that is not true. In fact, it's the opposite. And so he goes on. He says, verse 5, Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? So there's two possible interpretations of this. First, some think that the psalmist is speaking of his enemies that are coming against him, perhaps rich enemies, oppressors who are coming against him. Those are the days of evil, when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me. Others, and I, after reading this and going through it in almost every single translation under the sun, and uh, looking at the Hebrew the best that I could, have um, come up with a little bit different one, and many other commentators as well, so I'm not alone on this. Um, they believe that what he's speaking of is the days of evil when he's going to die. Why should I fear the days of evil, those days, my last days on the earth? Why should I fear those days when I know that my life is sweeping away, when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? It's like death is surrounding him and snipping at his heels, trying to pull him down to the grave. I believe that is the picture he's given here. And so he's saying, why should I fear? That is the question. Why should I fear? Why should I fear this? Why should I fear death? And he's going to contrast it with the, I would say, the worldly rich, the worldly fool who has all their comfort, all their possessions in this life and is not doing anything for the kingdom of God, not living for the kingdom of God at all. They're fools. They think they will last forever. So look at verse 6. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue and live eternally and not see the pit. So this is the reason the fool should fear. Money cannot save you. It cannot save your brother. It cannot save save any of your loved ones. It can do absolutely nothing for you when death is at your door. And why is that? Because the redemption of a soul is costly. Just pause and think of that for a minute. The redemption of a soul is costly. There is only one price that could be paid for a soul. There is no amount of money 
No amount of riches. Nothing that is on this earth can atone or redeem for a soul. For a person's soul, which is precious, it's costly. Right? God made it. He made man in his image. Therefore, we have worth. The human soul has worth beyond what we could possibly imagine. But it's also costly because man sins against God. And that requires a payment to be brought forth. Right? And there is no money on earth that can, that can pay that. Just think about it. When absolute perfection is offended, what could possibly pay for that? What could make up for that? What could make up for the, the fact that absolute perfection, absolute holiness has been offended by us? By people on this earth. I mean, what would you pay? What would you say, okay, here, God, this will make up for it. This will redeem me. There is no price that we could pay. None. Think about it. Only a life of infinite value, only an infinite sacrifice could possibly redeem a soul. And we see that through Jesus Christ. I mean, you guys already know where I'm going with this. You know where the text is going. It's telling us that there's nothing that we can do to redeem ourselves. Only Jesus can redeem us. He is the only one who has the, the value and the infinite holiness, the perfection to pay for us. God had to do it. There was nothing that we could do, nothing on earth that could save us. There's no amount of money on earth that can pay the ransom price of a soul. No amount of money at all. So all they have here cannot help them in eternity. Cannot help them in eternity. And then it says, so let me read that again. Um, Starting in verse 5, Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my hill surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. Now, you got to wonder what will cease forever. Okay? If you have a different translation, it may interpret it for you. I do not um, take those interpretations as being right, though, because I think they're really guessing on what it is, you know? Um, and it says, and it shall cease forever. The NIV interprets it much like the ESV and many other translations do. No payment is ever enough. So they say the it is the payment. Or could the it be the soul? The souls of those who die. They shall cease forever. It could be either one. Um, his death is eternal. He will never cease paying his debt to his judge. I mean, just think about it. Once somebody dies in their sins, once their soul has been cast into hell forever, it's forever. They will never cease paying it. It will cease forever. That soul will. And so will the hope of ever paying it off. So they should give up trying. 
They should give up trying to pay it off. They should give up trying to find redemption in this world for God. They will continue to leave. And then it says <clears throat> that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. The pit. So right there kind of tells me that, that it might be talking of the soul. So that he should live or should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. He will live eternally, but it will be in the pit. And the word pit there is an interesting word as well. It would be used of the grave or of hell or of destruction. In um, ancient Hebrew, which are done in pictographs, if you've ever seen ancient Hebrew, it's kind of like hieroglyphics, and each letter represents is a, is a picture. And the picture that we get the Hebrew word from is a pit with sharp walls. A pit with sharp walls. So just imagine that you put a trap for like a lion or a bear or something like that. You don't want them coming out, so you put all these spikes around that pit so that they, if they try to get out, they're just going to stab themselves to death. And that's what it is like for those who will be in that pit. They will find no way out. If they try to make their way out, they will only harm themselves even more. Right? <clears throat> and now the psalmist will point out how foolish men are who live for this world. Verse 10, For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. So all die, the wise, the fool, and the senseless. I like the King James Version. It says brutish. The brutish man, the one who's like an animal walking around. The only thing they can think of is feeding themselves, feeding their flesh, procreating, and making themselves comfortable. That is the brutish man. It's like a cow just constantly trying to feed himself. And death is no discerner of persons, right? The wise, the fool, and the brutish, they will all die. They will all perish. None of them is going to be left over, right? The wise, the fool, and the, and the brutish. Death doesn't discern. Death doesn't play favorites. All who live in this world, as friends in this world, friends of this world will perish. And it could also be that um, the wise, for he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless perish. It could be that the wise is speaking of the godly, or it could just be speaking of those who seem to do well in life, the ones who seem to do everything right, but yet they do not discern the kingdom of God at all. And so they perish as well. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 9, because this is a lot like what Solomon writes here. So he's talking about, he's done everything under the sun. He's experienced every pleasure. He's done everything that anybody could ever want to do. And so in verse 9 he says, So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. 
For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I the more wise? Then I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? Therefore I hated life because of the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and a grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled, and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has the man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and all his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. So look at that. For he sees wise men die. Likewise the fool and the senseless perish the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Isn't that what Solomon just got saying? That he, he's going to strive his whole life. He's going to put his heart towards this, his hands. He's going to put all his strength into it. And what's going to happen? He's going to perish and it's going to go to somebody else. And who's to tell whether that person will be a wise man or a fool? Many times the next generation or the generation after that will be foolish. They didn't have to work for it. Therefore, they take it for granted. We have a, a saying at work. It's always ringing through my head anymore. It's uh, up on our wall. It says, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak, weak men. Weak men create hard times. And that's what's going to happen. We strive and we strive and we strive. And possibly so that our children could have more than we have. But it turns them into fools because now life is easy for them. And they don't have to strive. They don't have to think. They don't have to experience hardship. And so they become fools. And eventually, in a generation or two, they will be weak. And they will lose everything that you worked for. That is what he is saying. That is what the psalmist is declaring to the, to the rich. It's not going to last forever. Eventually, it's going to be destroyed, and eventually, somebody's going to lose it all. All this hard work that you've done is going to be gone. It's going to be nothing. They, have a, they try to have a legacy that will endure. You know, they call their lands after their own names, it says. They call their lands. Oh, I, I skipped a part. 
Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. This is verse 11. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. No, I didn't skip that. I read it. <laughs> I think the cold's getting to my head. <clears throat> so they call their lands after their own names. You know, that's, it's the thought of having a legacy. You know, I, I really like Chuck Smith because he was always saying, I've, I heard it in different sermons, you know, don't ever name anything after me, he would say. You know, and he never named anything after himself. The Chuck Smith Library, the Chuck, Chuck Smith Ministries, you never hear that. You know, it was always Calvary Chapel. It was always about Jesus. It was never about a man. And that's what we need to be about. You know, just think about it. What's going to last? In all our striving, in all of our trying to gather comfort and rest for ourselves and for our kids, what's actually going to last? Only what's done for Christ, right? I like C.T. Studd's poem. He says, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That goes along with Matthew 10.42. Because what do we think? We think, well, if we really want it to last, it's got to be big. It must be a massive undertaking that we must put our hands to for our work to last, for us to have an eternal reward for it. That's kind of the thought of our minds, right? Matthew 10.42 says this, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Just give a cup of water. In the name of being a disciple, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're saying, I'm acting like my master, and you're giving that person a cup of cold water because they need it? They will by no means lose their reward. Many times I believe it's the little thing. It's not the huge things. It's the things that nobody sees, nobody's aware of. Nobody's going to pat you on the back for. That's going to last for all of eternity. But you could do things that people will pat you on the back for, that you would be famous for, and it will mean nothing in eternity. But you could give somebody a glass of cold water in the name of Jesus, and you will by no means lose your reward. But here's the foolishness of storing up for self and finding comfort in it. Let's go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 13. Verse 13, it says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The teacher is Jesus, obviously. But he said to a man who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you, and he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my bards and build greater. And then, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. 
Then I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good things laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool! Isn't that who he's talking to in Psalm 49? The fool who has gathered up for himself. He says, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who's <clears throat> will these, those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What an awesome illustration of what we're reading here. The, the rich man just stores up for himself, stores up for himself, stores up for himself, thinking, oh, my kids will get it, and then they'll be comfortable and everything else. And God says, you fool. You fool. All of this is going to perish. Your life is going to perish. And nothing will remain of this. But you, if you were to be rich towards God, then what would you have? You'd have eternal rewards. You'd be building a kingdom in heaven. So look at verse 12 now in the psalm. It says, Nevertheless, man, through, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beast that perish. So even though he's in honor, even though everybody pats him on the back and claps for him and cheers for him and says how great he is, nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like beasts that perish. He's no better than a beast. You know, at work, I'm picking up dead rabbits all the time because we, we have rabbits everywhere. And I pick them up, and there's worms in there, and there's maggots, and they, it stinks. The moment you pull it off the ground, you're like, oh, you want to gag, or little mice, which aren't as bad. You know, I don't do it with my hands. I do it with a long stick, okay? And um, that person's no better than that. No better than the animal that we see on the highway that's been ran over by a car. No better. In verse 13, he says, This is the way of those who are foolish, and their posterity will approve their sayings. Or who approve their sayings? This is the way of those who are foolish. They gather up just to die. And also for their posterity, their children, and their children's children. It's all bleak, and it's nothing without Jesus Christ. That is what our lives are without Christ. Without God, they're bleak, they're meaningless, they're hopeless. But with Christ, we have such a future. Look at verse 14. Like the sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. So here we have a picture of death. Like sheep, they're laid in the grave, and literally death shall pastor them or shepherd them. Death shall be the one that feeds them. Or, as the New King James says, death shall feed on them. You know, just like sheep that once grazed the field and then they're laid in the grave and they decompose and there's nothing left, so will they be. Daisha, who's the, um, the, uh, the guy who came out of the king's palace and he saw the pretty girls and he said, you know, you're not going to be so pretty when you die because worms are going to be eating you. 
John Knox. John Knox walked out of the king's palace, saw these two pretty girls sitting by a fountain or something like that, and said, uh, you're not going to be so pretty when the worms are devouring your flesh. That's a good way to evangelize. I want everybody to try it. Um, But it's true. It's true. You know, our bodies are going to decompose. Death is going to feed on them. That's going to be done for all those who put their hope in this world. But then we're given a wonderful prophecy in this too. It says, the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. 1 Corinthians 6.2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then I want you to go to Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 15. So you have um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then you have Daniel. If you hit Hosea or any of the minor prophets, you've gone too far. But Daniel chapter 7, we're going to look at verse 15 through 27. So Daniel's had some visions. He's seen the kingdom and the army of the Antichrist coming against the saints. And so he says this. He says in verse 15, Daniel chapter 7, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So just keep that in mind. The saints shall receive the kingdom, even forever and ever. That's the morning that's talking about in uh, Psalm 49. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was great, then greater than his fellows. This is speaking of the Antichrist who is yet to come. Verse 21, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Ten horns are ten kings who arise from the kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. So things are going to get really bad, in other words. Things are going to get really bad. I believe the saints spoken of here are Jews, those who have to go through the tribulation period. But then listen to verse 27. 
Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That's also speaking about us because we will come back with Christ when he returns. That is the day that the morning dawns, right? The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. So even though we suffer now, what's going to happen then? When Christ comes back, we will reign and rule with him for a thousand years. And it says, also says in, in uh, Psalm 49, And their beauty shall be consumed in the grave from their dwelling. This is the future again of the self-reliant, the fool, who has all of their comfort and their wealth stored up in this world. So here's a good exercise for you guys, just to keep things in proper perspective. I got two of them. Number one, when you're going to the gym, you're doing the curls and you're looking in the mirror, okay, and you're noticing how bulging your biceps are, I want you to imagine yourself with worms eating your flesh. When you wake up in the morning and you're doing your hair and you're putting on your makeup, just remember that one day worms will devour your flesh. You're going to be dead and bloated. You're going to be decomposing. Things are going to be coming out of you that are just horrid and disgusting, and you will turn into dust. So just think about that the next time you're doing your makeup. What are you living for? I mean, we take such good care of ourselves. You know, we watch what we eat, make sure we get sleep. Well, at least we try to. You know, when you have kids, that's pretty much out of the question. We, we do all these things to, to preserve our bodies here and to make them last, and I think that's good. We should be good stewards over what God's given us. We should be as strong as, and as long as we can, but for the purpose of glorifying him and serving him. Not for the sake of vanity. We have to keep things in the proper perspective. The second exercise, and this is one's but more positive, is to remember that this life is just a vapor, and the Lord is coming, and he may come in our lifetimes. He may come right now, and we won't have to die. And we'll be with him forever and ever and ever, and we will look back on this life and say, why didn't I live more for him? Why didn't I serve him more? Why didn't I strive after him more and more and more? Why didn't I pray more? Why didn't I read more? Why didn't I love more? Those are the things that I would imagine will be going through our minds. Why didn't I trust him more? Why did I get caught up in sin? Why did I do those things? But then he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. And he's going to say, my power is sufficient. I accomplished my purpose on the earth. Right? So two little exercises to think about. Every day. Think about those every day. Either one, I'm going to die and I'm going to go be with the Lord. And all this is going to mean less than it meant here. Or two, he's going to come back and get me, which is far better. You know, after working at a retirement home... Getting old isn't that appealing to me anymore, you know? 
I mean, I want to be here as long as I can because I feel like this life is too short as it is to serve him. No, I want to fulfill what he's called me to do. And everybody else should feel the same way. Look at verse 15. And here's where it gets good for us. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. So this is the contrast between the foolish, worldly person and the saint, the upright one. The, the foolish, rich person, they're going to die. Death's going to feed on them. They're going to be destroyed. But for the upright, for the saint, for those who have been redeemed and bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Can you say this with confidence? Literally, in Hebrew, it's not but God. It's surely God. It's expressing deep confidence in God. Surely God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. There is no doubt in my mind. That's what's going to happen to me. Surely he will redeem me from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Just think of it. God does not leave your soul, saints, trapped in your rotting body when you die. He does not leave you there. There's no such thing as soul sleep, like many like to say. God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He shall receive me. And I love the word receive me. It's not just accept me. It's not just like I'm coming to him and he's like, okay, come on. No, it means that he reaches down and takes us from the grave and receives us to himself. It's almost like he raptures us from the grave, our very souls. He takes us. He yanks us up. He snatches us out of the grave. The best way I could think of it is have you ever seen your child fall down? when they're little, and you just hear that cry, and it's just, it's heartbreaking, and, you're, and you just go out to him, and you want to just grab him up as fast as you can. That's the closest thing I can think of. You just snatch your child up, and they fall over and bonk their head, or they get hurt, or they get scared. You just grab them, reach up, and snag them, and you pull them as close as you can to yourself, and you hold them tight. That is what God is going to do with us. So the moment we die, we're not looking forward to rotting. We're looking forward to being snatched up to him, taken up, received to him, pulled up out of the grave, our very souls. That is our future. That is why the psalmist says, said, why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surround me? Why should I fear? Because this is what I'm going to get. Surely God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. And also, do you guys, everyone of you knows you have a soul. Your soul is the true you. You know, I don't believe you separate. We are mind, soul, and body, right? The Bible declares that. Mind, soul, and body. But the real you is your soul. This is also just a tent. It's a dwelling place for your soul. But one day your soul, your body is going to perish and your soul is going to be swallowed up by life like it says in 2 Corinthians 5. You will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. 
But that's our future. So why should we fear in the evil day? You know, because death is at every corner, right? I mean, I'm amazed that my kids live as long as they do. I remember when, I think it was Tori was a baby, or maybe Abby and Dylan and Daisha are running across the room, almost stepping on their heads. I'm like, ah! How are they going to live? It's only by the grace of God. How do we not get in our cars and every single one of us perish? I mean, death is around every single corner. But for us, it's nothing to fear because we are going to be snatched up by God if we do die. It's not like we're going to just be falling into the darkness and then he's like catching us at the bottom saying, oh, it's just kidding. (laughs) No, the moment you die, you are yanked out of your body and you are received up to him. What a beautiful truth. What an awesome truth. What a hopeful truth. And it's a truth we can have for our loved ones who are in Christ so that we don't have to despair, so we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. And look at verse 16. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich. When the glory is... And, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm like, couldn't you just keep going on what the believer gets? You know? But he didn't because he wants to drive home the point. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not be sent after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. So look at, look at that. We're not to be afraid when one becomes rich. When, and it's speaking of a rich oppressor. Okay, when the wicked become rich, when they become powerful, we're not to be afraid. When a wicked person takes over the White House, we are not to be afraid. When wicked people take over our country, we are not to be afraid. Right? When the glory of his house is increased... For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall descend or shall not descend after him. He's not going to take anything with him. He's going to go to the dust. He's going to go to Sheol, the place of the dead. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. He's going to look really good. He's going to look very powerful. He's going to look strong. And men are going to praise him. Men will praise anybody if you do well for yourself. And then they'll talk about you behind your back. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. What a bleak future the unbeliever has. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. He keeps driving that one home too, doesn't he? The one who is in honor, who is rich and does well in this world, and yet does not understand, does not understand the kingdom of God, does not understand true wealth and true goodness and true comfort and true rest that's in Christ alone. It's like the beasts that perish. It's like the beasts that perish. Now I wanted to read one more scripture, and it's in Luke chapter 16, so go ahead and go there. Because this really illustrates the truth of what we're reading. Luke chapter 16 Now, a lot of people have said this is a parable. I do not believe it is a parable. 
Because in parables, you never see names of people. Here we see names. It's a story that the Lord knew of. And his infinite knowledge. It says, there was a rich man. This verse 19, chapter 16 of Luke. There was a rich man, a certain rich man, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Purple was the clothing of the rich or the noble. So he's very well off. And he fared sumptuously every day that he has all the clothes, all the comforts, all the food that he could ever want. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, there is a, <clears throat> besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there passed to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Then he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither Will they be persuaded that one rise from the dead? That is the future of the poor who puts their faith in Jesus and the rich who does not. All they could possibly want is just one. I mean, just think how desperate he is just to want Lazarus' finger dipped in some cool water to come down and calm his tongue from the burning flame. It would be there and gone, but just one moment of relief is all he can hope for, but that hope will never be met. What a sad story. What a tremendously sad story. Shouldn't this cause us to pray more for people? For our loved ones who don't know the Lord? For our country, for our world? Rather than just holding people in contempt? I mean, look what their future is. It's bleak. It's, it's morbid. It's, it's hopeless. And yet we have such a great future. We have nothing to lose here. We have only gain in, ahead of us. We have only hope ahead of us. And they have all their gain here and no hope ahead of them. Let me ask you, how much do you pray? For the lost. And how much does your heart go out to them? We all have people at work that we can pray for. My brother's like, yeah, there's a lot of people at work I can pray for. You know? 
Even I do. I work at Denver Seminary, and there's a lot of people who need to know the Lord. I'm sure of it. You can't tell me everybody there's saved, even though there's many godly people there. My job's harder than yours because they're self-deceived, thinking that they're okay. I'm just kidding. It's probably not. Every unbeliever has a hard heart. I like to think that it is, though. That's stupid. You know? So let's make sure we're praying for those who don't know. Make sure we're giving them the gospel when we get the chance. Ask the Lord for opportunities. Now, I always have said this many times before. You're with somebody. You're working with them. You're riding with them. You're doing something with somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Ask the Lord for the opportunity. Ask the Lord to bring himself up and then start looking for the opportunity and take it. It might be something you see on the news. I remember sitting with residents at my old work and we'd turn on the news and be like, man, this is horrible. And um, start talking about you know, depravity and why people are evil and let that lead into the gospel. Just find some way. You know, you see that they have shoes. You know Jesus had shoes. But whatever it is, just take the, take the opportunity. <laughs> oh, you have water? Oh, do you know the Son of God came down and he actually had to drink water while he was here? Because he became a man so he could die for you? you know, I don't know. Take every chance you can. Pray constantly. Pray in the moment. Amen? And let's not live for this world. Let's live for the inheritance that we are promised as saints of the Most High. Let's pray. Father, we um, thank you so much for the inheritance that we have in you. You say that we will inherit all things. And Lord, we believe it to be true. We know that when we die, we will be rescued by you. We already have been. Lord Jesus, you died on the cross for us. You paid the cost for our souls. Lord, it makes me wonder what people are living for who don't know you. What purpose do they have? Maybe it is just to build a legacy or to give what they have to their children. And you say that those are your enemies. They're not thinking about you. Lord, help us to be your hands, your feet, your mouth to people. You have given us your word. You have given us your spirit, your power. God, let it increase in us, please. Like John the Baptist said, may you increase and I decrease. Lord, do a wonderful work. We praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, there's communion. Um, let's come, at, come up and let's uh, bring, it and bring it back and take it together.